Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard Creative Team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. Okay, today we have a major treat for you. Design historian and author Emily Erdmans wrote the book on legendary decorator Mario Bawada, literally. In fact, she wrote two books about him. Not only did she work with Mario Bawada himself on his 2013 monograph, but she recently released a historical recounting of the designer, his influences, his work, his legacy with Rizzoli titled Mario Bawada, Anatomy of a Decorator. So Emily, welcome to the show. I, I am so happy to be here. Thank you. We loved getting to see your book, um, you know, read it. And honestly, I felt like it was almost like a design textbook. Just it was there's so much to get to sort of go through. And it was so full and encompassing. Um, Obviously, it's about, you know, sort of a, I guess, well, he's a legend and legendary American designer. He's one of those names that if you love interior design, if you're a frequent reader of Shelter magazines or even just a listener of the show, you've probably seen his work or heard other designers reference him as someone who influenced them greatly. And he, so since even though he was an American designer, he sort of popularized the legend, you know, or that, um, that sort of English country house look. So um, maybe you could kind of give any listeners who aren't, familiar with him, just kind of a an introduction to Mario Bawada himself, and then kind of share with us how you became a close personal friend of his. Well, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about Mario and why so many people are familiar with him, you know, maybe less so younger generations, but hopefully that's changing, is because he was a personality and he was one of the first interior designers, he always called himself a decorator, but he was one of the first interior designers to really embrace turning himself into a personal brand. Uh, and that what now everybody does that. Like every, like, even if you don't have a company, you are thinking of yourself on Instagram and how you're presenting yourself. Uh, but he was doing this in the eighties, um, you know, a long time before social media. And he also straddles the generation before that of, um, sort of old school, interior designers like Sister Parrish of Parrish Hadley, who was baffled by Mario and didn't understand why he wanted his name on sheets and Vogue sewing patterns and potpourri. And when she was done at the office, she just wanted to go home be with her family and friends. And for for Mario, he was working all the time. His personal life was his work life. It was his clients. It was going to showrooms. And I think that is, you know, he really wanted to be famous and not just for fame's sake, but to make enough money um, in his in his profession, which as it is, it can be very hard to actually make money as an interior designer. Um, so he was courting it in a way that was really revolutionary at the time. And, you know, I have a, I have 
lots of sisters-in-laws and they are not into, many of them are not into, into interior design, but they had heard of Mario Buada. And that is the thing that he really, we might not realize it now, but he was probably the most famous interior designer in America in the 1980s, was a household name. And that was not an accident. In terms of the look, um, as you mentioned, and I so appreciate you calling it the English country house style, because so many people call it English country style, but it he, he wasn't the only one doing it, but he really, um, I think, popularized it for the American market. And basically it's taking the Colfax and Fowler look of, you know, chintzes, um, different periods of antique furniture, um, great architecture, amazing curtains, and bringing it all together. Um, and Mario knew how to adapt that for America, where we don't have the incredible, I mean, some people do, but not many people do, 18th century architecture and like 16 foot high ceilings. And, you know, you might not even have a fireplace in your uh, apartment, but he knew how to translate it for American spaces. So in a nutshell, that's sort of uh, Mario Buada. So how did you meet him and, and become such a close friend of his? We first met when um, I when I, when I first started working, I was working for an English uh, antiques gallery and we exhibited at the Winter Antique Show, which is now called the Winter Show. And Mario had long been the chairman of the show. And I don't, I think he had retired. He, it, it was actually a bit controversial because he was sort of wielding his power and maybe, uh, you know, not a great way, but anyway, he was a really big deal. And when I moved to New York in 2000 and w- was, you know, going to the opening night of the show, there would be people decked out in emeralds and it wasn't necessarily black tie, but it was so glamorous, which now you'll see people, you know, in, in like, expensive sneakers. Um, but it's, it's just a different kind of vibe. But back then it was a really big deal and he would be walking around holding court, but then he would have like a dollar bill on a string. Um, or, you know, he, and you know, Martha Stewart would be trying to pick it up. Um, and that's what, you know, when you're like, who is, who is that man? Like, what is he doing uh, with this very serious event being so crazy? And that's when I first heard of Mario Buada. Um, and so that, yeah, that was 2000. He later went on to write the foreword for the first book I ever wrote, which is on English furniture. And then, you know, but he doesn't even remember that. What he, he thinks we met, well, he's, anyway, he's dead. So he thought he would have thought we met, um, around 2000. And that's when Charles Myers, who's the publisher of Rizzoli, who had been courting Mario forever to do a book, everybody wanted him to do a book for years and years. And he, he just was so disorganized. I really think that was the barrier to him not having done a book before because there was physically no place for us to meet um, or for anybody to meet. And so Charles picked a team that would have a lot of patience and be able to give a lot of time to Mario. And I was one of the writers he suggested. And the first time I met Mario, which again, he doesn't remember, I was extremely deferential. And I was like, Mr. Buada, and, you know, like just fully showing the esteem that 
a decorating legend deserves. And he did not like it. It made him uncomfortable. And when I met him again, um, and I, I was older, a little bit more confident, I would push back. And he loved that. Um, and you, ha- you had to kind of create your boundaries with him, and then he would respect you. So I thought when we were doing the book, you know, we would spend all day together at Rizzoli's offices and then we'd go off. To, he loved cabaret. So we'd go off to like the Cafe Carlisle and see Bobby Short. Um, and I thought, well, maybe he just wants me to like really do a good job on the book. Like maybe this is a showmance. Um, and so I didn't know when it was over what what was going to happen. And um, we stayed friends and it, it wasn't. And he he meant so much to me. Um, he was sort of a, an uncle like figure. He, he could be a pain in the butt. Um, he could be extremely difficult and be cr- like a little paranoid and crazy. Um, but we would always co- you know, come back together. And it was actually, I hadn't been talking to him for a little while cause he had annoyed me. Um, and I got a call in the summer before he died that he um, had gone back home to his apartment where he hadn't been able to live for a long time because it just wasn't a good place to live. And I, I knew that wasn't a good thing. And I called him and he answered and he was in the emergency room. And so I went immediately and that was sort of, that was kind of the beginning of the end. And I was sort of with him, you know, almost daily on that, that journey of, ICU, hospital, nursing homes, and all of that. And I, you know, I think that just made seeing him decline and become weaker and that there was nobody else really around um, made me feel very protective of him, um, more so than maybe I would have if we hadn't had those months together like that. Um, And so when he died, um, his, he, his brother was his heir. Um, but he wasn't, he, he, he actually died this past January, but he, he didn't have great health. And, um, I was so, I'm so grateful that he allowed me to, um, to help with the estate. And so everything that we did, like with the Sotheby sales, it was all about Mario's name and his legacy, because as I mentioned, fame, which which he so um, eagerly sought, it wasn't, it didn't end up just being to help his business. It was the, um, the emotional affirmation that he never really got elsewhere, um, you know, from his father, d- didn't have a partner. And it came to be over his career that seeing his name in print, um, was just the bit, you know, just meant so much to him more than it probably means to us um, because we have other things. So I just, the, the, the guiding thing from, from selling everything of his doing this last book was I don't want him to be forgotten. So this, he's, he sort of consumed my life for the past five years. And this book, this new book that just came out is it's sort of time for me to like, I'll never, I mean, I think about him every day and that's not going to change, but I need to kind of, I need to move on a little bit. This is a way of sort of tying it up in a bow. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been so nervous about how people are going to see it because it's, I've always, 
I, you know, I have a specialty in writing about dead decorators like Madeleine Castang and Henri Samuel, but I never met them. And to write about somebody who you know so well and somebody who he didn't throw away anything. And I was the one who touched everything and decided what to throw away. And so I know, I know everything about him and it's um, like things he would never have wanted me to know and, uh, or anybody to know. And it's, you know, I feel very protective of him, but then as a historian, you want to lay it out. Honestly, you know, you want to do, um, so for those reasons, this was probably the most difficult book I've ever done. Throughout the entire book, I was thinking, God, this was probably such a hard project because, mm-hmm. you know, you do mentioned in, in the beginning that you were, you know, friend, you close friends and had worked with him before. And, and you also mentioned, you know, working to, I guess, like working with his estate to, you know, decide what was being sold and getting his apartment cleaned out and everything. And God, I just, I could tell that this would have been a, such a difficult project. Um, but then how, so then, you know, after his death, how did this book come about? Because um, you know, I didn't mention in the introduction, but there are so many like documents sort of in the, in the book drawings that he did of his living room and, um, you know, all sorts of little sort of, I guess, historical documents. Um, so that sort of adds a lot of color to the book and really shows his personality, but also, um, uh, you know, they came from somewhere. So you <laughs> had to go yeah. through them all. Well, so I start my introduction to this book said that like the first sentence is something like, this is the book Mario did not want. And that is true on many different levels. The first book, which um, we did together is it's completely his vision. It's an incredible portfolio of his work. Um, he was so lucky to get special permission from um, Architectural Digest to reproduce so much of um, of so many of his projects, which was very unusual. Usually, um, they only allow thirty percent of a book to come from their magazine. I think it's changed now, but back when when we did the book, um, but basically he'd only been published in AD. Um, so that that was remarkable. It's over 400 pages. It's we call it the Wattipedia. It's like over five pounds. Um, that book that I thought that book was really frustrating to do because as a historian, I had a different idea of how, how the book was going to unfold. Um, and I didn't realize how much that it would just be his vision. And so there were people I wanted to interview that he was like, no, you're not allowed to talk to them or you can't put that in there. Or like for his show, like for his projects, he didn't want any dates in the captions because he thought if they saw he had done a room in the sixties or seventies, they would think it was old fashioned. And then, and of course, from my point of view, it's like, you have to have dates on, like, you know, that gives context and actually makes it cooler that that room that looks like it could have been done today was done in 1969. Um, But it was his, like, he had the final say on everything. So this book is more of, you know, from a design historian's point of view, um, putting the dates on things, I was able, you know, I was calling... different schools registrars to confirm the dates that he went to school and you know he would just sort of glide over his early years but he didn't finish college he had 
you know, maybe six weeks of night classes at Cooper Union until his mother died. And then he just kind of was paralyzed for a little bit and then went to start working at uh, B. Altman, a department store's uh, furniture floor. Um, so the the how little education he had was so interesting to understand and made me appreciate where he actually ended up and the 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 level of of projects that he did and the amount of detail and the understanding of architecture that he had which was basically self-taught that was so fascinating to discover without him kind of you know standing over me and saying like just this is just the story we're going to tell so the first book is like you're you're having lunch with him or you're having a a cocktail with him you really get the sense of his zany personality which is fantastic that that's preserved this book is all about like how did he become to be mario boada and let's drill down into his look which he never wanted to give away his secrets he never want you know nobody really helped him so you know you've got to figure it out yourself um, so, but I wanted this book to have a little bit more of the behind the scenes and yeah, how, what, let's show some drawings for how we did curtains or thought about rooms. Um, so they're very different books and you, um, you definitely have to own both of them if you're a Boada enthusiast, uh, because they complement each other. Yeah. Well, tell me more about, you know, you mentioned his humble background and not being formally trained. How do you think that influenced sort of where his style went and his sort of trademark aesthetic? I think that's such a great question. He, and I think about this all the time, he, so he grew up on Staten Island. Um, Both of his parents were the children of Sicilian immigrants and his Um, On his father's side, his father had many siblings. Many of his siblings, the father's siblings, had been born in Sicily as well. And a lot of them had to start working at 13, which at that time was legally allowed in New York to start working. Um, And his father was a very talented musician and traveled with Rudy Valley, who was in movies and like a big society band leader type. And they, he actually, Felix was the father's name, took, um, took Mario and Olive, um, Mario's mother, out to Hollywood for a year, like just to see if they, they could make it with Rudy Valley. But then they ended up moving back to Staten Island. Um, so Mario was exposed to glamour, um, I would say, um, exposed to like what it means to be an entertainer and to present yourself for a crowd and like to be on. But how he fell in love with the English country house style, which had nothing to do with how he grew up or what he saw, was a fascination with um, wasp style, if you will. And, um, you know, like he thought Sister Parish was everything. And, you know, he would often joke like, you know, that he's calling her up and asking her, what what have you done today that I can steal? He said to me, um, you know, if my name hadn't been Italian, but more English sounding, I would have gotten more clients, which 
I was shocked by like, what? I mean, you had, you were at the top of the pile, like, you know, so he was really aware of that, um, really aware of having this strong Italian sounding name, but so wanting to be part of this kind of wasp establishment. And I think, you know, if you look at what the 80s were about, which were, he was doing the style well before the 80s, but that was his big heyday. You know, there was so much going on that made our culture want want the English country house style. You know, there was Brides Had Revisited on TV, um, Prince Charles and Diana getting married, Laura Ashley, we were all wearing Laura Ashley. Ralph Lauren was also totally embracing that that look and so he he was really at the right place at the right time and for having already been doing this look f- for so long and it was a style that appealed to a lot of new money types who wanted to look like they instantly had pedigree um so i so that was also he was you know deep down even though he was not pretentious he was not fake he did not put on airs he kind of, you know, he he certainly, um, if you walked into his apartment, you would have thought he had maybe come from old money. Um, but he he was completely self-created, um, which is which is remarkable, I think. Yeah, I don't even remember your question anymore. <laughs> I'm just going on and on. It, me me <laughs> neither. Say, it doesn't matter. That was still a great yeah. story. <laughs> I was actually fascinated by that part of the book, the part where you talked about... Um, sort of why the English country house style became popular in the 80s. And I, it, I, I, this, okay, I was totally going to ask this at the end because we have so much in between here, but um, it made me think about how, how grand millennial style is mm. so popular today. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, this is totally the same thing all over again. Like we've got the Royals that are always in the news. And then we've got, we had like this pandemic that sort of was, you know, was kind of like World War II. And because you mentioned about how like, um, well, you could probably say it better, but like the, um, that sort of English country house look wasn't, really the look that was popularized in America wasn't really what the actual English country house look was right. and how right. it had sort of been deteriorating for a little while because of World War II. And and anyway, so I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, it's it's like the, it's like Grand Millennial now. What do you think of that? And do, do you think he would have liked the Grand Millennial style? Oh, he would have loved it. He would have <laughs> loved it. And I think what is important to understand about him, like, okay, in the 80s, he is at one with the zeitgeist, but he was embracing the style in the early 60s. And what was mainly thought to be like super cutting edge and fashionable in the 60s is like glass and chrome and um, you still have a bit more modernist or a little po- going into postmodernism. And people, he would talked about in early article, early interviews, how people would laugh at him for having these, you know, bow tied ribbons, which were something he learned from John Fowler of Colfax and Fowler for, which is an 18th century device to hide the wires that hang, that pictures are hung from. Um, and for all his dog paintings and, um, ch- you know, chins and, you know, people were like, what is he doing? Um, and so, 
it is kind of, it's a little bit of an avant-garde move, uh, movement, the grand millennials. Like there's something kind of perverse and thumbing their nose at like the XL Vervoort or um, just like beige, sleekness, Zen monastery um, style that is also terrific, but it's a very different experience. And then I think like that you mentioned COVID. Well, that's not an... Grand millennialism was definitely emerging before that, but I think it, it's gone to another level. Um, like look at the book Charm School that was published, and there's lots of other books um, that are kind of circling around the, the style. Um, it's sort of what do you want your own personal space to be like? Do you want it to be a plate, like just uncluttered, serene, is that what you need after you go out into the world and come home to, or do you want it to be a cozy cocoon um, that embraces you, stimulates you, um, and you're surrounded by the things that you love and color and pattern? So I think there are different personality types or even psychologies that respond to the different those two different spheres. And then there's the third person who um, is just afraid. Like they don't know, they're afraid of personal taste or of, they don't know how to know what they like. So that's sort of a third category. But Mario and I are definitely in the maximalist color stimulating, um, whereas my husband would like, he's like, oh, if I could just have a mattress on the floor and that's it, you know, in a white box, that would be, that's my dream. It's like, well, that's, you know, never going to happen. But, um, but I do think, I mean, I'm sure the three of you all respond more strongly to one or the other of those, um, those two types of worlds. You know, that's a good question. I do think we all have different styles, but probably all lean a little towards more layers mm -hmm. than not. Yeah. Um, layers are definitely but no, I more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I do think that um, I was mostly thinking about COVID in the sense that, to your point, I, I kind of think it maybe made people wistful for like those sort of all-encompassing rooms, those layered coziness, nostal like have this sort of nostalgic feeling. And and so to your point, it was sort of happening pre-COVID, but post-COVID, it's just sort of like really exploded, you know? But anyway, that it, the grand millennial thing totally takes us off topic. I mostly just found that section of the book especially fascinating, mm -hmm. just for how relevant it is now, but, um, right. And I also think like before I, I, I think you could say, um, the pendulum swings between, you know, like right after Mario's like full blown super layered rooms are de rigueur that's followed in like the nineties by this whole beige, moment. Um, but I think things have changed now with social media and the internet and algorithms and that what we like naturally, we just keep seeing more of. So I think as we're more siloed, things are coexisting more as opposed to this is the leading look for now. That's what I think. I could be, you know, I might be wrong, but I, I think now more things can coexist um, than could before. 
Totally. Everyone's got their like mm -hmm. little niche that they're yeah. in. Well, I do think that we should talk a little bit about some of Mario's influences. And you you mentioned some of them, but I that was another element of the book that I really enjoyed. It was sort of like a little, you know, debrief on like you had, you know, Albert Hadley and Sister Parrish and Nancy Lancaster and like all of these designers that um many of us I think have heard of and and like Sister Parrish, you know, she her fabrics and um but getting the little uh sort of bios and synopsis of each of them I found really interesting. But can you tell everybody a little bit more about um Nancy Lancaster and John Fowler and how they sort of their work just really resonated with Mario and captured his imag imagination and I guess kind of more how he came um and like the yellow room. Yes, all, I mean, that's, that is where it starts for Mario. So he's working um, in 1962 for an interior designer called Keith Irvin, um, who you may have heard of. And Keith Irvin was Scottish and had been an assistant for John Fowler. And then he hears about working, I think he even, because Sister Parrish was friendly with Nancy Lancaster and John Fowler. And um, they were even going to have a deal where Parrish, or I think, is this before Parrish Hadley? I can't remember. But she was going to be importing Colfax and Fowler products and selling them in America. But then like the import duties didn't end up making sense. So that didn't happen. But she was very closely allied with what was going on with Colfax and Fowler, which I'll talk about in a second. So Keith is offered a job with Sister Parrish and he has no, he is like, he says like $8 in my pocket, gets on a boat, shows up at her office. She does not remember this at all and, um, and didn't, apparently didn't really take to him. And um, I think everybody who worked there at the time was a woman and like they made him use a bathroom that was like across the street or I don't know. Anyway, he had a terrible experience and eventually he goes out on his own and Mario, through a friend that he knows who's also working for Keith, gets Mario there. And so for if you look at Keith's work, it's very Colfax and Fowler. Um, it's really the first time that Mario is exposed to this English country house point of view. Um, and Keith loved, you know, brilliant colors and fabulous uh, patterns. He was actually um, one of the co-founders of the fabric house, Clarence House, and um, which was all about importing English fabrics originally to America and selling them there. And then he and his part, the business partner, Robin Roberts, split with Irvin taking the decorating and Roberts taking um, Clarence House. Um, and so Mario talks about how two things happen. One is Keith has a Chesterfield sofa covered in Lee Jofa floral bouquet. And um, Keith gives it to him. And this becomes Mario's favorite fabric ever. He's just obsessed with it. This is the beginning of his relationship with Chintz. Um, the other thing is he opens a book, a house and garden book on, of English interiors, and he sees a picture of Nancy Lancaster's yellow room. And this is probably, I think this is 1963. I can't remember, 62, 63. And it just... Um, as he said, he went berserk. It just spoke to him so deeply. And I, I'm imagining 
Um, you all also are that kind of person that you have seen in a photo or in person, a room, and it's just stirred you so deeply. Like, I don't think it, it does that for everybody in the world, but I bet you are also that way. So for him, it was the yellow room. And the, one of the things that really um, struck him about that room was Nancy uh, Lancaster had lived, um, she was Virginian, um, but had married, well, she married a lot actually. Um, but one of her husbands, um, was half English. Uh, he's part of the Marshall field family and they, um, after this, is it after the second world war leased a big, you know, rented a huge country house, um, Ditchley park. And so from, and then she hired Jensen to help her decorate it and then moved on to other big, um, big houses. But she, when she divorced, she brought everything that she loved from these big houses into basically what you might call a huge, like one bedroom apartment. And of course, her her like one bedroom is you know the living room is i don't know like 40 feet long and 16 foot high ceilings you know it's not you know it's not like what we might find here in, in new york or wherever um and so he was to see such grand things um you know huge portraits of these two sisters that annette de Laurenta now owns and just the saturated color um he always called that room a scrapbook of her life that you see all these layers um you know of, of different different times of her life and these different houses and she's just brought her most favorite things together so that spoke to him so deeply and another like going back to his background of being from a family of Sicilian immigrants in Staten Island, he would always tell the story of when he was, it varied. It was like he was 11 years old or 12 years old, how he bought this little like late 18th century lap desk, um, Sheridan style lap desk for like 12, you know, $12 on layaway from a local dealer. And he brings it home and his father his father's reaction is what, why, why do you want something secondhand? You know, leave it in the garage. Let's make sure there aren't any termites or anything in it. And that is such a different mindset of, you know, the immigrant mentality where you want something new and like you can afford something new and being proud of that and maybe not understanding antiques. And the fact that Mario was such an antiques lover and such a collector and surrounded himself by it. It was not how he grew up at all, um, but it was just a natural love. So Nancy Lancaster, um, her, her, a previous husband encouraged her to buy um, Sybil Colfax's design firm. And the, the big star of the, of the firm was John Fowler, who really, did he he did a lot of the painting most of the design work and so she bought it and then renamed it colfax and fowler but she didn't have her name as part of it and what in a nutshell everybody says the colfax and fowler look is about is the pairing of the american love of comfort which means 
heating and squishy sofas and um, ensuite bathrooms and um, you know the thing things actually function um, and like you're sitting and there's a table to put your drink on and that kind of thing with the whole grand stately English country house architecture um, and all the collections that would come down through generations of, um, of ancestors that would have lived in that house. And that was something Mario tried to replicate in America where he would say, okay, maybe we've just bought everything brand new for this room, but we want it to look like it's been collected over time. So we're not going to have all the fabric match. We're going to cover that one chair and a totally different thing that maybe is a little off because it'll look like it was brought in at a later date, even if it wasn't. Um, and so collections were so important to him. Um, have, you know, he really wanted, um, what people loved themselves to be in the room, you know, to kind of spur them to want to collect. But, th but that, and then another way that he adapted the English country house style to America is the colors that um, Colfax and Fowler used were often sort of cafe au lait or oyster gray. Um, a lot of the Pharaoh and Ball colors are actually derived from um, Colfax and Fowler, like Elephant's Breath, um, Mouse's Back. Those are all names given by Nancy Lancaster, I believe, to those paints. And they're a little bit muddier. Um, and North American light, or at least East Coast light, tends to be much brighter and clearer. And those colors can look muddy and not as nuanced. And if you look at Mario's palette, it's aubergine, it's chartreuse, it's, you know, watermelon. So, you know, and that was something he learned um, from one of his, he did a summer school program in Europe um, with Professor Stanley Barrows. And he, he famously quoted Barrow saying, look, look at the colors of Manet, of, um, you know, Degas, look, that's where you learn about color. And if you don't understand what they're doing with color, then you're never, you're never going to get it. So Mario adapted the palette. It's very different. The architecture he was working with, you know, he might be working with eight foot ceilings in a Manhattan apartment. And, um, you know, there's certainly not great wood paneling or what have you. And Sister Parrish also talked about it. A something that became very important in their schemes that was less important to Colfax and Fowler would be the upholstered furniture. So having really strong, a really strong sofa and upholstered chairs and where they were really gave sort of rhythm and cadence to a room, um, in a way that you didn't necessarily need to have, um, in England. And then the curtains, which were, um, a specialty of John Fowler's. I mean, he was like, couturier, you know, designing these incredible curtains with detail that, I mean, I just don't know if anybody can even afford to have done anymore. Um, but Mario and, you know, Sister Parrish and that, that, that school of decorating did incredible curtains. And that was a huge part of bringing, of, of bringing, creating architecture in a room was the curtains. Like they're, they're essential to the look. Yeah, so I went off on a tangent a little bit, um, but back to Mario discovering the Yellow Room, he um, he finally is able to get himself over to England in 65, 
and go to Colfax and Fowler and he meets John Fowler. He sees the yellow room um, and he and John Fowler become very friendly. And the next 10 Christmases, Mario goes over there and spends at John Fowler's hunting lodge. And one of the extraordinary things I found were all these letters uh, from John Fowler to Mario, which just was astounding to, to see John Fowler's handwriting and how John Fowler, you know, he's my dear boy and how generous Fowler was with telling him what his sources were or sending him a bit of molding, um, sending him a, a, a little chip of the yellow rooms glazing, uh, egg yolk glazing to copy all of that. So that was really fun to discover that Mario wasn't just an admirer, but he actually was a friend and was mentored by Fowler. So cool. So neat. Oh my gosh. I just want to watch a whole documentary series with you talking and telling me everything. (laughs) 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 With images going and you speaking to this, I am like all in. Mm. I'm just going on and on guys, you know, like, no, it's it's amazing. It's interrupt me when you need to no um hearing about that relationship and you have you know pictures in the book too of these um these really sweet letters um of their relationship and really speaks to it and you can watch how his style evolves in this section too which is just lovely to see how he develops through these influences and that was such a lesson to me to see you know i you know before it's 65. He's, you know, he gets to know John Fowler. He's starting to buy, like, import English antiques over and buy lots of things from Colfax and Fowler and all of that. But he still, because uh, he opens his business in 63. And how old is he? Oh my God, this is not my strong. He's like 30. He's, yeah, about 30, 28, 30 when he opens his business. And, um, you know, he doesn't have anybody floating him. He's got to, and I think he, he's still living in Staten Island and, you know, coming into the city to work at the very beginning. So if a client wanted steel and chrome, I was seeing in these early, early news clippings that he had, he would do it. And he's like, whatever the client wants, I can do. And it's by, I would say the mid seventies where he's like, nope, this is what I'm about. I'm not doing that. If you if if you this is if you want this, then you come to me. And that I think is when it clicks for him, and when he starts um, really um, ascending, you know, and really getting attention. And show houses were a unique place where he could just do what he really loved um, without you know, having to adjust it, accommodate a client and show houses. I don't know if show, show houses are great for getting on the map, but I don't know how good they are for getting clients. Now, back then you would have a client coming and be like, I want that room. And you would really, um, you would really get a lot of work out of it. And the first show house Mario did was 1969. It was for this, it was put on by this Vassar alumni group in Connecticut, and he did this bedroom with, um, you know, chintz dressed bed, marigold walls, sort of hot pink details. It was just this riot of color that um, House and Garden photographed and featured in their magazine. 
Um, and they were just astounded by, look at this, this amazing use of color. So that was, that was a way that Mario really stood out at the beginning was how he used color and how he was using antiques. And a really important person saw that and loved that room. And it was Mitzi Newhouse. And she, her husband um, owned Condé Nast, uh, Samuel Newhouse. And she asked him to copy that bedroom for her guest house, but except so he replicated it and that picture is in the book um with but it has like two twin beds instead but you can see and it's not a slavish recreation but it's it's really interesting to see like how he adapts it for her and he then went on to decorate for lots of members of the new house family um and you know and Till the end of his days, they were also um, from Staten Island, and they would he would um, join them for their Thanksgiving um, dinner every year or lunch actually the Thanksgiving lunch every year. Um, so he made these relationships, and he was really good at keeping them um, and and you know working with people and families for 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 a long long time, but. Yeah, show houses were, were so important, I think, to giving him confidence by the reception of what he did when he, if he did what he loved, then it really worked out well for him. And then he would also talk about in interviews how he learned from advertising the importance of repeating something several times until um, like be, staying on message and just you know, doing the bow tied ribbons over and over again, or doing the ruffles over and over again. So people would get it and, and, and connect him with that look. It was 1984 when a news reporter called him the Prince of Chins. And you just know it was like days later, he was out having a chin suit made, you know, I mean, he understood the power of, of like, gotta have a gimmick. He really was like the first influencer, you know, like really. He really was. He had a strong point of view and like selling it to everyone. Exactly. And it's like people knew, like reporters knew if they called him or like the Shelter magazine um, editors, if they called him, he would have a great quote ready for them. Um, He would deliver um, and a lot of, a lot of people I interviewed or all, they were like, oh, he had a publicity person. It's like, no, he didn't. He just really, he really knew how to telegraph himself and get himself out there, um, in a way that is very much today. So, okay. At the end of the book, you have a section that's about, um, well, I can't remember if you called it this, but I wrote it down as the Boada way. Oh, <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> But but it was, you know, sort of uh, elements that he repeated or were sort of like trademarks of his style. And there were there were four C's, chintz, curtains, color and collections. And (laughs) um, so I was wondering if maybe we could like kind of touch on each of those because I mean, and there were a couple, you know, there were a couple more, but um, but those were like the four biggest ones. Yeah, and- that diamonds and there is it like cut clarity, whatever. It's all about the Boada series. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yes. Which one do you want to start with? Well, you know, you mentioned the floral bouquet earlier, um, his favorite fabric. Um, and I, you know, I think there was a, a part in the book where you talk about how 
And it must have been like in the 90s, maybe after the country house, English country house thing kind of had been played out. And he, someone was sort of making fun of him for using chintz. And he said chintz was timeless. And I just, you know, maybe we could talk about what it is about chintz that I think um, was so exciting to him and then why it endures. For Mario, Mario, when he was talking about rooms, he would always talk about trying to make a room feel like a garden, that a garden was the ultimate inspiration. And so you wanted to have things of varying heights, like you wanted a garden, like in a border of a garden, the colors of a garden, you know, he would, he did this one, um, he, he did get a little lazy, but he was allowed to be because he did so much work by himself. But he, so if he worked with a client and then they moved, he would just reuse everything, you know, and there, so he had these clients who lived in a, um, in this apartment in the Sherry Netherland and the living room had aubergine walls. And then they moved to another apartment where it had, um, a living room that was twice the size and he used, everything was the same. He only bought two new pieces. He didn't recover anything. Um, but then the walls were apple green and he's like, it's, they all go together because it's the colors of the garden. Um, and which is like, it was the same rug. Everything looked just as gorgeous with this different, this different color background. Um, so chintz is like what chintz technically is or wh- like where the name comes from versus what we mean when we use that word today is a little different. Um, Chintz was basically Indian printed textiles that were, you know, imported um, to Europe. And often they had floral motifs, but not necessarily. Today, when we mean it, we're often meaning it's going to be printed with, you know, like a cotton, maybe it's glazed and shiny um, that's printed with floral, uh, with a floral pattern. And so I think he loved, he loved the exuberance of chintz. He loved how many different colors were incorporated into that because that really helps you figure out a room and pick out colors. Um, back when he was designing, a lot of designers would start with a rug and often uh, carpets or rugs were the most expensive thing in a room. But for Mario, he would base the whole pattern and color situation from a hero fabric. Um, and so chintzes just gave you so much to work off of, but I do, I think it's that combination of being reminiscent of the garden, um, all the gorgeous color, um, that for him made it, you know, and it was romantic. I think that's also something that's essential to his work is there's a lot of romance to it. Um, so yeah, so I think th- those were reasons why he, he just loved it so much. And then we, we kind of talked about curtains already, but, um, you know, even just, just flipping through the book, some of them are just so over the top, but, um, uh, all of them, you mean, <laughs> True. All I, of them. it was yeah. such an important layer for him. Like you already have said, mm-hmm. Emily, like, yeah, it really, um, especially with clients who didn't have, who, who were living in more modern um, uh, dwellings where there there wasn't a lot of architecture, the curtains were everything. And um, 
you know, they were very, they were voluptuous. They, um, they, he would have lots and lots of trims on them, which I think is surprising if you really drill down and be like, okay, there's an edging to the panel, but then there's also like an inner braid or ribbon. And then the phalanx has like different, you know, different trims. And then there's lining and interlining. Um, and also, something I, I mentioned in the book is that you have to have the panels for the curtains um, really generous. You need to have at least one and a half to two um, width of the whole window for one panel. Um, and a lot of people might just do one cur- one um, fabric bolt width to do a panel and it looks, it looks mean. It, you know, maybe you can't even fully, um, close your curtains. And that's one of the giveaways that it's like that on a Mario curtain is like how, how perfect, how, um, perfectly swagged, how there, there should be a looseness to it. It can't be too tight. Um, and, and also one of the things he did, um, for his client, Patricia Altschul, and he did it for a few other clients is to get the exact colors that he wanted, he would cut strips of different silks and then stitch them together um, to create the the striped uh, curtain panel. Um, And it could, if you look at Patricia Altschul's dining room, you can see those curtains were made that way. Um, And it just, you know, just that he was, he was a maniac for detail and a genius with color. And like, if that's the way you're going to get the exact colors and the exact width of stripes that you want, then you just, you create it yourself. And that way, you know, and just, I think that being obsessive and being super, super detailed in his work, like, again, like you're not just going to have um, an upholstered chair over upholstered chair with a self welt it's going to have a contrasting welt. And then the skirt is going to have one or two trims and it's going to be a color that's picked out from the pattern. That's maybe a little unexpected and that'll be echoed somewhere else. And so it's a whole universe of details that are echoing and coordinating with each other that takes a lot of, um, um, bandwidth to kind of, to kind of wrap your head around. And he was unrelenting, uh, and, you know, and when I was working on the book, he would read out the first book, he would read out the, the drafts to me. And if there was a phrase he didn't like, he'd be like, he would just like start screaming at me like jovially, but like, until I was like, okay, okay, I promise I'll change it. And then he would read that draft back to me three more times until it was perfect, which made me want to murder him. But now I understand that's why he was so good. You know, like he's not phoning it in. He's not like, oh, well, you know, it's fine. Um, it like, it had to be perfect. Um, so he could be a pain, but but the, but it was all for the result. Um, and then the next, okay, so we did, ch- we did chintz, curtains. We talked about color a little bit. Mm-hmm. Color. Which, you know, his, I, I am definitely, um, you know, the reason I agreed to do the first book with Mario and I never helped somebody write their book before I've, I've only worked, I've only written, um, you know, about dead people was 
not because I was such a Mario fan, but because we both love um, English country house style and Colfax and Fowler. And like, we both loved the same things deeply. Uh, and I also thought he deserves a book, um, you know, that he hadn't ever had one. And, you know, he's been working for over 50 years. Like this, this is, this is an honor. God, now I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore, but color, color. Yeah. (laughs) Color. So we both share, we also share a love of color. So I'm right now sitting in my aubergine living room. That's done by the same decorative painter that did, um, his, a client of Mario's living room. And I have in the next room, I have chartreuse walls and I have a private gallery. And when people come through, they are shocked by the color. And most people here in New York just have white walls, especially if you rent, you don't think about painting. And Mario was creating super, super colorful environments that just can't help but affect your mood. And to me, that's like the most normal thing in the world because that's how I live. But I forget how most people, it is sort of rare to like go ahead. Well, I'm seeing, looking at two of you, one of you has white walls, but two of you have very dramatic moody, uh, moody walls. <laughs> it won't be for um, too long. <laughs> okay, <laughs> promise, promise. Um, but there's nothing, you know, Mario would say like, there's nothing like paint and changing the color to just completely transform a space. Um, and again, going back to his clear colors, he, he just was that if he was a genius in anything, I think it was in how he used color and his understanding of, you know, a pink, if you've ever painted a room pink, it's so hard to get it right, you know, to get the right pink. It can, it just, it's often like Pepto-Bismol nightmare. Um, but he was a genius at, you know, figuring out the right color in a room. And he would, you know, he wouldn't just pick out a paint swatch and then like call the painter and be, do this. You know, he was on site. He was looking at how it looked on the wall, adjusting it and and all of that. So color is essential um, to, to the Mario, the Mario look. Okay. I just have to say that a, a light Googling of you and your, um, home was featured in Veranda, and <laughs> everyone should definitely go look at it because those aubergine walls mm. are so gorgeous, and the apple, green, Amazing. the apple green, amazing, the apple green is incredible. So, and that was yeah. one of Mario's. Uh, it's Benjamin Moore She Climb, and that was one of Mario's favorite colors. Um, that the, that green, and everything looks great. That's where I have rotating exhibitions. And we're always like, oh God, how is, because it's strong. It's a really strong color. And you're like, is, is this work going to work? And everything looks, it's incredible. Everything that we've ever shown on those walls looks dynamite. It would be a great front door color. Oh, it would. It would be, that would be, it's a gorgeous anywhere color. <laughs> I was going to say your home alone speaks to your, your passion and even your love and relationship for him, I think. I mean, looking at your home, you can, I feel like it's just as joyful and wonderful, speaking of color. So it's beautiful. Well, okay. You're making, thank you. Thank you. That is like the, the most generous praise. And the fact that you use the word joyful, to me, that's what it's all about. And I think, I think it was that way for Mario too. I mean, he wanted to create 
pretty rooms that made you feel glamorous and made you feel good and that you wanted to sit in that were actually really comfortable. And so that's definitely, you know, my living room is very much an homage to him, as you can see with the the blue bows and, and all of it. Um, so that's, that is my hope that it, that it's joyful for me, it's joyful. Um, but you know, that, but that if it can bring other people, make other people happy or feel good, that's what it's all about. Okay. Our last C was collections. Oh God. I was like, I thought that, what is that other C? <laughs> well, you know, we have talked about how he didn't throw anything away or you talked about how he didn't throw anything away. So what were what? like his, you know, Oh my God. What how, how many collections did he have? What oh, didn't he collect? What didn't he? I mean, you know, suitcases full of taxi cab receipts, you know, from the seventies, like, is that something you collect? But uh, so for him, I, you know, it was a level of hoarding. And if you, you know, read about hoarding, often there's like some kind of trauma that has caused it to go haywire and to go so extreme because it, it did go extreme for him in the end. Um, and I, th- this is something I didn't write about in the book, but it, it's something I always think about. And we, you know, Mario and I did talk about a little bit, um, but was the AIDS crisis in the eighties and seeing all these incredibly talented colleagues die, you know, and, you know, people who've worked at the design and decoration building in New York at that time talk about, you know, seeing people with the, um, I know this is graphic. I probably shouldn't get that graphic. But anyway, they're there today and then they're gone tomorrow. And just that feel. And, and people didn't understand it, under, you know, how how it was spread. And um, I think there was a terror. And I think he maybe closed up at that time. Um, like I mentioned, he never had a partner that he lived with. Um and I think he bonded with things. Like, I think there was, he certainly did bond with things extremely and would say to me, you have your husband, I have my things. And I, I don't know if, if it was the eighties and what, what, um, especially the gay, gay community was going through at that time. If that was what it, what that trauma was for him, I know it affected him and he definitely became like didn't date because, you know, it would save your life to not at a certain t- time. But yeah, it was, it, it, and I'm definitely, it was sort of a cautionary tale for me too, because I do love things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, Mario was a true extrovert and really did get charged up by being with people. And I do think there are people, there is that psychology of, are you a things person or not a things person? And, and people collect for different reasons. For some people, it's um, the shop, you know, the sport of it. The the like the pursuit is really exciting. Uh, for other people, and then they never even look at it again. Um, and for some people, it's just the having it and being surrounded by it, or like you have a category that you want to fill up. I think for Mario, it was all of it. He certainly had a black belt in shopping. You know, he loved the pursuit. It, he, it was a release. It was a high. Um, and then, and then he just never deaccessioned anything, which is where the problem, you know, which was sort of problematic at the end, but yeah, collections. And he really did think a room, like if, if you were a client and you didn't own anything, 
he would create an instant collection for you. And he, you know, he, he, I was surprised by how, um, high quality, um, how important some of the things were that he owned, that he collected like ceramics. He had an incredible ceramics collection with lots of, you know, wonderful 18th century English porcelain pieces. Um, you know, he bought, he bought, it was from the Doris Duke sale and he spent like $40,000 on like this little, you know, flower head ceramic thing. Um, so he wasn't afraid to go for it, but he also loved Matahedda and reproduct like very good reproductions of historic things and would go out and get tons of that for a client if that's what they were inclined to do and didn't want to spend to have the real collection. Uh, but you have to have the mix of good things. If, if you're going to have that, uh, some reproductions, you also have to have some really good things to sort of balance it all out. Uh, but yeah, collecting, it's such, I know I'm going on and on. It's a really complicated C for Mario um, because it's, it's kind of, his collections were like his family, his lover, his companion, his passion. Um, it's, you know, and when it goes back to how he talked about Nancy Lancaster's Yellow Room, that it was a scrapbook of her life. It's like his, his own apartment with all his things, like that was his life. And it became really emotional once we were getting to the tail end of emptying out the apartment because I could feel him evaporating. It really felt like as long as the stuff was there or the dog paintings were on the wall, like he was still with me or still there. And interiors are so ephemeral, you know, they're like one of the most ephemeral things in the world. And the fact that that, that living room of his with the dog paintings had been there from 1976 to 2019, the year after he died, we dismantled it. It was just, uh, it was a really, it was a really tough moment actually to like say goodbye to that room. But I think it, that isn't the way it is for everybody that, that a room is a portrait of you. It might be, you might be that kind of person. I'm more that kind of person and maybe, and, you know, but not everybody is, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, here's, um, <laughs> no, there's so much there that I'm like, what, what do I, what do I go to first? But I, I know, like, what do you oh. do that? And you have a photo of that, of that room with the blue ribbon, and that's the last thing in the walls, and it's just, it's, it's a heartbreaking photo. Oh my gosh, um, it is. I that I took that photo, and I just I wanted to preserve what it was like. I also thought it was fascinating to see that the ribbon didn't continue down the wall, like behind. It wasn't just one ribbon; it was sort of segments of ribbon nailed, and it just spoke to how the the theater of it. You know, um, that it was it, it was sort of putting on a show in a way. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and then you can see the outlines of where the paintings were. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really, I think it's a really melancholy, um, soulful photograph. Um, it's, it's like, he's still there, but, but he isn't. Well, this book is such an amazing collection of not just his work and his thoughts about design, but really such a deep dive into what influenced him and who influenced him and why. And it's, it's just a really insight into a, a beautiful life. 
Oh my God. You know, he did, he had a beautiful life and he loved beauty. He really, you know, and he wanted to create beauty. And I think it's so easy to dismiss interiors, you know, like, oh, that's frivolous, but it isn't, you know, how, how we experience our day and how, what our surroundings are and for them to be beautiful and to make us feel great. I mean, I think that's important. Um, and any, I'm, I'm so grateful to you all for letting me talk a little bit about more about Mario and I've been very, I didn't know how people were going to receive the book. I thought, oh, maybe like the Sotheby's thing got so much attention, but like have people moved on and, um, it's been, I mean, again, maybe it's just the algorithm and, you know, and, uh, but the, the, the positive response, um, has just, it's made me so happy. It's really that, that Mario, that people are still looking at his work and still finding meaning and relevance in his work um, makes me so happy. Well, and it was honestly such a uh, strong hold on, I think, you know, for my case, for my childhood, my mother, this was it for her, right? Like this is, this was the peak of, of it all. So I think, you know, I look at this so differently as well as kind of a, owed to my childhood, right? Like the home I grew up in. And it gives me a different feeling right there that I can totally look at his rooms differently now as an adult and really seeing the beauty and the really special, unique stuff that again, I know my mom also was so inspired by. <laughs> and when you bring up this, like this nostal- this moment of nostalgia about his work where I, and I think maybe the grand millennials are connecting with that, you know, like that, coastal grandmother, like grandma, oh, that's very grandma is actually a huge compliment, you know, that it isn't like saying something is out of fashion, but it's, it's, it's actually, when you go to your grandparents' house, often it's like the best experience ever. And it's a, it's like such a a fun say, I mean, so many of us have wonderful memories of, 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 our grandmothers or like the bedroom you grew up in that maybe was like totally Laura Ashley or something like that. And just that all the good feelings connected with that. Um, I think you see in Mario's, you know, that people have for Mario's work. Totally. And I, and, you know, I kind of mentioned this in the beginning too, but it's just, I think so much of um, just, just like if you were to take an art history class, but so much of interior design is sort of derivative and like uh, versions of others. So knowing sort of the the background or where some of these references come from, like the yellow room, like sister Parrish and Albert Mm -hmm. Hadley. um, I love getting a little refresher in some of those contexts Mm -hmm. because they do help you understand where certain gestures and right. elements that we all think of and use today, where they come from, what their their real initial purpose was, and um, and so I love that part of the book. I just I feel like this is just essential reading for anyone that's, <laughs> that's you know it should be like a textbook at design school or something. But it's such a, like nothing happens out of nothing. Like mm-hmm. everything is built on you know, and I. I have taught design history courses and, you know, the, the Clismos chair, which dates back to antiquity, but it still looks so fresh and current today. And if you go to high point, you'll see versions of it still being made. And, 
And people might look at that chair and not realize it actually dates back to antiquity. Um, and like, that's why, I mean, you have, you have to know the past, I think, um, to create something for today. I mean, it's only going to make your work better. And it, I think it helps if you, if you, I think we all, and you mentioned this in the book as well, but um, I think we all want to have, make smart choices and make timeless decisions in our spaces mm, for right. no other reason than for, uh, for it to make my financial sense, you know, yes. you want to buy things that are going to last. And so knowing what the sort of design background history of furniture, furniture pieces, like a chintz or the Klismos chair, a Louis chair that I guess sort of gives you, um, power to know that there's a timelessness to it. And some of the, not the details of your furniture. I don't know. Taryn, what's your take on this? Taryn's our furniture designer. Oh, yes. What do you think? Oh, no. I, I it, it goes, it's like you said, it's knowing where it came from feels, it, yeah, it just feels so much better, right? Like you having that history there and knowing and the story that goes with it makes things feel even better. It's the whole reason we collect things, that same feeling of there's there's something here from the past and, you know, where did it relate to and why? The why behind every detail on an antique and, you know, what was the function behind it and why was it, you know, what was this decorative story? So... Um, no, I love, 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 loved the book. So I, I appreciate it. I, again, I want to reread it again, just because yeah. <laughs> there was so much detail you put into here that I mm -hmm. was fascinated to correlate and put together those relationships. Absolutely. And we're not doing a design dilemma today because we, there this was so much to dig amazing. into. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you for letting me just go on and on and on. <laughs> I had oh, that was fascinating. I know. I, I want to yeah. dive into even one of his influencers that you are, you know, one of these designers that you've referenced because you obviously dug into those details. And I'm like, all right, tell us more about this. Because even all the Colfax and Fowler stuff, I was like, that's so, you know, like just, I've never looked up the origin and I've, I've known about it for forever. I it's just, it's one of those. Where I was like, oh, so anyway, you're. And Taryn, everything you design, like if you design anything that is some connection to a historic design, mm -hmm. but of course your own twist on it, mm -hmm. it's it's informed by other things. And just to, un to just to understand those other, like what what were those things, and then you can reject it mm -hmm. or like, oh, that's really an interesting detail that, that, but then you can put your own twist on it. Um, so I, you know, we're all, we all ever, like all of us who create things are influenced whether we mm -hmm. want to admit it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and whether we're rejecting the influence or putting a new spin on it. Um, so I think the influences are fascinating. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so true though. Well, Emily, thank you so much. This was such a treat. Um, can you tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, and obviously buy this gorgeous book? Which, by the way, I do. I, we, okay, we could keep, we could go on, but I I love the like cover. I love the. Oh, did you take the cover off? <gasps> yes, Don't. It's, just, it's Caroline. It's just uh, like 
It's beautiful. Oh, it's so pretty. I... I didn't know how the cover was like the actual um, hard case was going to turn out. And so we were like, okay, just in case it's, it looks terrible, let's do the jacket as well. But oh, it doesn't look terrible. Out. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's stunning. It's so like art. I don't know. It's like a piece of and, art. And the, um, the cover, the illustration is based on a drawing Mario did himself for an advertisement that he had printed in a show house journal in the uh, late 60s or early 70s. I can't remember. It's um, fabulous. This is one you're going to want to put on top of your heap. You know? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, well, this it, um, it's you. You can hopefully find the book anywhere, um, and you can find me on Instagram at Erdman's New York to see what we're we're up to um, at the gallery. But um, yeah, I just it means so much um, to for Mario to, to continue finding an audience and um, that his legacy lives on. So thank thank you so much. Well, thank you for for being being on the on the show. We loved having you. <laughs> and that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time. Happy, Happy decorating! decorating.